Thanks, Dr. John. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. John Malloy and uh, Provost and Chief. And uh, I want to thank the Elder for the prayer and the singers for that beautiful song. And uh, I was presenting tobacco here earlier on today. So, ni stamina pixque neo an obsisi, kakeo no tentic, no acumagnac, canenascum tinawau, kakeo. Kiteak, canenascum tin, from the heart, a big thank you. Okimakanak, canenascum tin, as well, from the heart, a big thank you. To my friends and relatives here, Uskayak, the youth, canenascum tinawau, I thank you all for coming. Napoak, the young men, Iskoak, the women, kakeo no tentic, my friends and relatives, I thank you all for coming here. And to share tonight some thoughts, some ideas, and some dialogue and how we really work together as indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples, as Indians, as natives, as aboriginals, as Bill C-31, uh, First Nations, uh, Cree people, Nihayoak people, Chanishnabek peoples, the Haudenosaunee peoples. We'll talk about terminology a little later. Because <laughs> I used to do a lot of misconception training when I was at the Crown Investments Corporation of Saskatchewan. And I used to always hear it around the coffee machine. What should we call them? <laughs> what should we call them? <laughs> and so we'll come back to terminology a little later. But we're people. And uh, a very important thing, and just to, to, to comment again on the elders' teaching, you know, the importance of prayer and uh, how we're all connected because there is only one creator and there's many roads to that creator. I would just encourage people to get on one because it's, it's really important and the teachings from an indigenous person's perspective. And she talked about the water and Mother Earth. And as we always acknowledge in our prayers and thank the Creator for Mother Earth for sure, the four directions of four spirit beings and the four cardinal directions. We acknowledge Father Sky, Mother Earth, Grandfather Sun, Grandmother Moon, and the waters. You know, And uh, the old people always say the water is so important because it gives life to our mother just like the veins in your body carries life to your body. You need to keep the water clean so the Mother Earth is clean. So she gives life to everybody the same way as the veins in your body. That's a very important teaching. So I say, from the heart for that prayer. Tonight, um, this, I want to get back up a little bit here. And I always go past, present, future. And it's to give you a little bit of background um, why I'm here. You know, as, as national chief. And I have a 100-day plan since I got elected December 10. And part of that plan is, is to reach out and educate people, decision makers, policy makers. And yes, we met with Thomas Mulcair and, and young Justin and Elizabeth May and Prime Minister Harper. Met with the premiers. Met with Premier Wynne yesterday and lo, lo, lining up all the meetings. Very important. Meeting with key officials in the university. You know, because you're going to eventually be policy and key decision makers here as well. And you're going to be leaders. And we're going to be calling on you to help make a difference and help bring about change. Because in Canada, I'm telling everybody, the status quo is just not acceptable. And what I mean by that is, and here's some statistics. Canada is a beautiful, rich country. And it's rated number sixth in terms of the United Nations Human Development Index quality of life, way up here. You apply the same indices to indigenous peoples, we end up being 63rd. So there's, there's a huge socioeconomic gap that exists in Canada in the year 2015. And so that's what we've got to work together to close. 
because there's a huge cost to poverty, there's a huge cost to overcrowded housing, there's a huge cost to economic marginalization, and there's a huge cost of keeping First Nations uneducated in jails and, and in the healthcare system, and that's why we have to close this gap. And I'm going to be encouraging each and every one of you as undergrads, graduate students, is to open your mind and hearts to policies, new policies and new legislation, to embrace new concepts like what I'm going to be talking about tonight, which is really sharing and benefiting from the land and resource wealth together. And that's a new concept that's been, I talked about it for 25, 30 years, about benefit sharing. Because in treaty territory where I'm from, it was all about peaceful coexistence and mutual respect between our peoples. And the same principle is here, in, in, in this territory here, you know, with the treaties here, that we're to mutually benefit from sharing the land and resource wealth together. And so embracing new concepts like resource revenue sharing is key. And so that's the premise of where I want the seeds I want planted that will eventually grow with the Harpers, with the Malkers, with the Trudeaus, with the Elizabeth Mays, with all the premiers, and even with industry leaders. Because it will close that gap. It will help close that socioeconomic gap. Tonight, I want to go past, present, and future. And I want to talk about something that's very important, and I'm not going to just focus on Saskatchewan, no. Here's something that I do in terms of key events. And there might be constitutional lawyers, there might be people involved with the economy, there, there might be people just involved, like, what's this First Nations guy talking about? <laughs> but I always start with this timeline to show, when we talk about this concept a few years ago, we threw it out there to all the premiers and to different leaders, and there's one premier in particular, uh, Premier Brad Wall, that said, no way. Remember that two or three years ago? There should be no resource revenue sharing in place. And so I quickly took up the challenge as premier. These aren't just promises, political promises being made. There are constitutional obligations, there are historical obligations, there are legal obligations. So when, as First Nations people, we get up and say, hey, we still have an interest here. We still have a claim here. We're supposed to be sharing here. There is some substance to our argument. It's not just First Nations people saying, hey, this is Indian land. <laughs> There's more to it than that. And so this timeline, I'm going to take some time to explain because it's very important. And I've always stated there's got to be education, there has to be awareness, that will lead to understanding, and hopefully that will lead to action. And that action will be policy and our legislative changes, any kind of new program programmatic changes or whatever, or sharing the wealth, so to speak. And so for me, I always start with this thing called the doctrine of discovery. You guys heard that concept before? Some nodding of the heads? Yes? No? Yeah? Okay. It's been around for a while. But right now, there's a movement now, even within the United Nations, that starts to see and view that doctrine of discovery as an illegal and racist doctrine. In fact, the Pope is even gone around to say it really was illegal. If we get a chance to see this new Pope, pretty outgoing guy, eh, Pope Francis? <laughs> well, we want him to redeclare it again. The papal bull is out there. It's null and void. Because Canada as a nation state still has not shown 
to me anyway, the legal basis on which they the crown acquired title. So if they're using this doctrine of discovery, it's really becoming an illegal and racist doctrine. But that's where people, it's a starting point. And then this concept called terra nullius, a vacant land. A vacant land. Well, of course, we all know the land wasn't vacant. And I always say in a respectful way, in a most respectful way, especially in light of 2017 coming, and Canada is going to be celebrating 150 years as a country since 1867, the British North America Act. A vacant land, Canada founded on two founding nations, French and English. I don't understand that when there are other indigenous nations here. In fact, there are over 58, 58 different indigenous nations on Turtle Island. 58 different indigenous nations, 639 First Nations communities. So you've got 209 in British Columbia, you've got 47 in Alberta, you've got 74 in Saskatchewan, you've got 66 in Manitoba, 134 in Ontario, 45 in Quebec, 35 on the East Coast, 44 in NWT, 14 in the Yukon. I know the numbers, man. I just ran for national chief, right? (laughs) (laughs) Of those 639, in each of the territories, each of the provinces, why I say again, the importance of language and identity, is very important. There's over 58 plus First Nations languages. And I learned a new thing. I thought, Wiki, Rifumakong, I always assumed it was Ojibwe. It's Odawa and Potawatomi. You know, I don't know if many people knew that. I didn't even know that. And they're, they're different nations, different languages. Even the word Ottawa, where did that word come from? Odawa, you know? Canada, Kaneta, Moha village, right? Manitoba, Manitoba, where the creator sits in Ojibwe. Saskatchewan, fast-flowing water, Saskatchewan. So even the names, the provinces, and come from indigenous languages. And I stress that is very important for us because it's identity. And it's so important. That's one of the things I want to keep pushing is the promotion and preservation enhancement of indigenous languages. Because studies have shown that once an indigenous person is fluent in their language by the time of 12, 13 years of age, they're more successful in school, more successful in life. They know who they are and where they come from. You know? I always throw out this once in a while. It's Ukrainian. Because I was bus from little black bear to a little Ukrainian school off the reserve. <laughs> so I'm a Ukrainian. No, I'm kidding. Big squid in the on. I'm Cree now. I'm a Ukrainian. <laughs> the importance of language. And Ukrainian is beautiful language, but that's from kindergarten to grade nine. I was busted to Goodyear, Saskatchewan, from Little Black Bear to Goodyear. And that's what I heard every morning. It was good day, students. Good Dobreden studente. You know, and then I was, oh, Dobreden ponachetio. Good day, teachers. You know. Anyway. I digress. <laughs> Language is so important. And uh, why I stress that, and I'll quickly make these two comments. Two things that really hurt the indigenous nations 
that really hurt and put down our, our, our nationhood. One was the imposition of the residential school system. And you probably studied that, you know, the impacts of the residential schools, the intergenerational effects. That's a big thing that really killed our people, hurt our people. The other one was the imposition of the Indian Act in 1876. Between those two things, they brought down a proud nation and they weakened it and they starved it and they... Anything good about being a First Nations person was no good anymore. Your language, your ceremonies, your traditions, your whole breakdown as an individual person, your family is broken down, your community is broken down, your nation's broken down, your hereditary system of selecting leaders is no good, you've got to implement a two-year elective system under the Indian Act, on and on it goes. Again, I digress, put that to the side. But those are the two things that really hurt. So back to the timeline. These are key things. I always start with the doctrine of discovery, terra nullius. Concepts that are being challenged now, both legally and why I go through this timeline, I want to show people that there's a constitutional obligation and there are legal and moral obligations to deal with revenue sharing. 1763, Royal Proclamation. Very important document. The king, the crown, recognized First Nations title to land and territory the first time. We didn't make this royal proclamation. The crown did. And we recognized October 7th, last year, 250-year anniversary. We made an excursion. Professor John Malloy came with us all the way to England, jolly old England. And yes, we had tea and crumpets at 4 o'clock with John. <laughs> In England. We wanted to keep our connection to the crown intact. And our relationship, because of that royal proclamation, is key. And that's the first time the crown recognized First Nations title to land and territory. Very important. The crown recognized that. 1867 BNA Act. Canada's Constitution, the British North America Act. Canada was a colony of Great Britain. But Section 9124 is key. The federal government is responsible for Indians, that's the word used, Indians and Indian lands. It doesn't say Indians on Indian lands. It says Indians and Indian lands. Further recognition of indigenous people's title to territory and lands. 1870 Imperial Order and Council. Very important. Very important. This one is important because I want to go to the Imperial, where is this 1870? Yeah, 1870. This is what it says. Upon the transference of the territories, the claims of the Indian tribes to compensation for lands required for the purpose of settlement will be considered and settled in conformity with the equitable principles which have uniformly governed the British Crown in its dealing with the Aborigines. Basically saying, when lands are taken up for settlement, this is the 1870 Royal Order and Council. These documents form part of Canada's constitution. So basically saying, when lands are taken up for settlement, Aborigines, meaning us, were supposed to be dealt with, on a, compensated on a fair and equitable basis. Very important piece. The 1870 Royal Order and Council, okay? After the 1870 Order and Council, 
we go through the number treaties. And number treaty slide, I've got to go to these slides here, number nine. Why this is important. In Treaty 4, where I'm from, the number treaties, they're sometimes called the, the Alexander Morris treaties. Alexander Morris was the Queen's commissioner, the Crown's representative. John A. Macdonald, Prime Minister of Canada, said, hey, we have this royal proclamation. We recognize we don't have title to that land out west. We need a mechanism or something for the crown to gain title. So he devised this concept called treaty making. And so he said, Alexander Morris, I'm going to pick you. You go out, meet all those tribes and those nations out west. Make a deal, make a treaty. So Alexander Morris was the Queen's commissioner, the crown, representing the crown. And he came out and met with little black bear. He met with Poundmaker. He met with uh, Piepot, all our chiefs. So you ever wonder in our territory when, oh, I'm from Little Black Bear, or I'm from Piapot, or I'm from Palmmaker, or I'm from Coacatus, or I'm from Daystar. They, the names of our reserves, our reservations, take on the name of the treaty signer sometimes. In 90% of the cases out in our territory. So when you say I'm from Little Black Bear, well, Little Black Bear was the chief that put his four direction mark on that parchment. And it was done in a, a very special way. Because we always say that it's like a covenant with the creator on top and then the two people shaking hands. And I brought a medallion just to, to show what I mean. Why we have a relationship with the crown. A treaty medallion. And this is important. The crown on one side. But the indigenous person, non-indigenous person shaking hands. The hatchet is buried. The sun is here, the water is here, and as long as the sun shines, the rivers flow and the grass grows. This treaty, the big writing, will be in effect for generations now, generations in the future. Okay? And this is important. This was one of the things given to our chiefs. Silver medallions to the chiefs, bronze medallions to the headmen, the four headmen, annuities, five dollars, big money. <laughs> but annuity payments. The size of our reserves, 128 acres per individual, 625 per family of five. A medicine chest at the house of the Indian agent in times of pestilence, sickness, and famine. Avocation of hunting, fishing, trapping. You'll be able to continue. All those are treaty promises. And our people would say, this much. We'll share. We'll share the depth of a plow with our brothers and sisters coming in. They want to farm. Seed. Surrender. Relinquish. We don't understand seed, surrender, relinquish clause here. Every elder I've talked to, every elder I've visited for the last 35, 40 years, and I really started at a young age, <laughs> but their teachings were to share the land. This much, only this much, to share. Magigwai umma, nothing underneath. And so, why we, we, I put this up here on Treaty 4, it was just to show the difference in interpretation. Because little black bear didn't understand French or English. 
but he spoke Cree and he spoke Assiniboine. So the written text of this, how was it explained to him in order to get him to put his X on that parchment? How was it explained? So the lawyers will interpret the treaty the legalistic way. Then our elders go by the spirit and intent interpretation of treaty. And so there's a difference. So this causes a point of contention. When all of our lives, ours is an oral history, we were taught, we cannot give up Mother Earth, but we'll share this much. They want to farm. And that sharing principle goes across Turtle Island. Goes across Turtle Island. So this treaty point, this treaty number four, here's the Williams treaties. Again, the same thing. Go by your languages and your spirit and intent. You need three things, I would say, to understand treaty. You need the treaty itself, the written text, yes. But you need Alexander Morris's treaty book, because he made his, all of his points in a treaty book. But more importantly, you need the elders, the third thing, the elders' oral history and evidence and testimony and their understanding of that. And then for me, when I go like this, I didn't learn it in the treaty. I didn't learn it in Alexander Morris's treaty book. It was by listening to old people. I'll call them elders, wisdom teachers. I can list, there's about 60 people. They're all passed on now. But they all said the same thing. Not only elders from Treaty 4, elders in Alberta on Treaty 7, the Blackfoot, in the North, Treaty 8, Treaty 10, all the numbers, the same thing. We were to share. We were to share. So, that's, back up to the timeline, that's Treaty Number 4, Depth of a Plow. The Indian Act, why I put that in there, is because all of our claims, in this Indian Act, remember I said residential schools? The deposition of the Indian Act, which is still here. I see some uh, Anishinaabek people here. How many people have treaty cards? Oh? Okay. Okay. Show me your treaty card. Just bear it. This takes two minutes. Just, just, just show me the treaty card. And I'm going to make a point here. My friends, my relatives... I love you all, but this is not a treaty card. <laughs> it's a status card, right? <laughs> and, but we have become so colonized and indoctrinated to think our rights come from that Indian Act in 1876. A lot of our people call these treaty cards. Even back home, and I say, no, no, no. <laughs> it's a status card. And you get this card, we get this card, not because of this treaty that was signed and consecrated nation to nation, not because of this holy sacred covenant and this sanctity of contract over here. We've done it through ceremony when the newcomers came. We sat down and we had pipe ceremony, we had sweat lodge, we had all these ceremonies for this covenant to be made. And our old people said, we called on all our creation to come witness. All our grandmothers, our grandfather, the spirit beings to come witness this agreement. That's why we say there's that sanctity of contract, that sacredness, that covenant with the creator. This treaty is strong. Up high. 1876, a federal piece of legislation was imposed. 
And it's a federal piece of legislation down here, which can be unilaterally changed tomorrow morning. Does that mean our treaty is gone? Does that mean our rights are gone? So I just use that to educate my relatives. Status card, Indian Act. We have a long way to go to see that treaty honored and implemented. Because even this is key. When we start talking about citizenship and nationhood, and remember Bill C-31? If we stay under that Indian Act for membership, in 25, 30 years, there will no longer be any status Indians in Canada. Because we're, we're generations, grandchildren not marrying status Indians, great-grandchildren not marrying, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. That's gonna, the chain will be broken under that Indian Act system. So we need to go back to nationhood and citizenship, but that's a whole nother, another presentation. I've got to come back over here. <laughs> but the Indian Act, and why I put this in here was because the Indian Act, right up until 1951, it was illegal for an Indian to have access to a lawyer. This was right up until 1951, this clause in the Indian Act. So how could we stand up to challenge legalities for our resources and make a legal fight? Under the Indian Act, we weren't allowed to leave the reserve without a permit from the Indian agent. We, if we had wanted to sell wood or kill a cow to eat, we had to get a permit from the Indian agent. Couldn't leave the res, wanted to go date my Nitsimos sweetheart in the next reserve, couldn't do that without a permit from the Indian agent. <laughs> they controlled everything. Economic marginalization, all part of that. No access to legal counsel, couldn't even get legal advice. So that Indian Act really controlled us. It controlled every aspect of our lives. Even to the point now when we try to create our own laws. Some of our people back home, did you check with the minister? Did you check with Indian Affairs? <laughs> and say, don't have to. If you want to exert your sovereignty and nationhood and jurisdiction. You know, so that, again, that's another presentation. <laughs> but back to the Indian Act. I put this one in here just to make that point on that timeline why it was difficult to really get things going because of this Indian Act. Okay? I put these ones here. But Ontario, Quebec, and New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, the four founding provinces, and then a little patch bark in Manitoba. For us out west, Saskatchewan became part of Confederation 1905 along with Alberta. Why I put that in there? Because we always have a dialogue debate. Who's responsible for treaty Indians, indigenous peoples? Federal government, provincial government. Which one? Who has jurisdiction over the land and resources? Federal fiduciary trust obligations. All these things come into play. Section 9124 of the BNA Act. Federal government's response for Indians and Indian lands. Provinces weren't even around. Why are we dealing with Premier Wynn? Why are we dealing with Premier Brad Wall? They came after treaties. Hear that all the time. It's important because they are, in reality, here. They're part of Canada's constitution, federal powers, provincial powers. Two governments recognized, ideally someday, ideally, 
First Nations governments will eventually become recognized not as a third order, but a first order of government. And then our laws, creator's law, will be recognized as well, in addition to common law and civil law. In Canada, you've got two systems of law recognized. Common law, in Quebec, Les Belles Provinces de Quebec, civil law. Or is it the other way around? No, that's the right way. First Nations law, at some point, will be recognized as well. But I put that in there to show they came after treaties. Okay? And then I put up there this thing called the 1930 Natural Resources Transfer Agreement. What was that? The feds were getting pressure. The federal government of the day in 1928, 29, 1930 were getting pressure from all the other prairie provinces now. They were saying, we want to be like Quebec and Ontario and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and control all of our resource wealth and provincial boundaries. So, the federal government caved in, passed this 1930 Natural Resources Transfer Agreement. There was no consultation nor consent by indigenous peoples. It was unilaterally done. How could we stand up and fight that? We were stuck on the res, couldn't leave the res without a permit. Didn't have access to a lawyer. How could we legally challenge it? But it was done in 1930. Depth of a plow, 1930, everything over to provincial governments, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Unilaterally done. Was that sharing? Was that peaceful coexistence? Was that mutual benefit? And the 1930 NRTA was subject to existing trusts. Subject to existing trusts. So we always point out federal fiduciary trust obligations of the Crown. Fiduciary trust obligations of the Crown. Very high up relationship. Did they breach their trust obligations in 1930? I say yes. 1982, Canada cut the umbilical cord to Britain. Patriots of the Constitution. Some of you guys remember that? I remember that. And then there was Indians outside protesting and lobbying. Don't do it. You're going to weaken our treaty with the imperial crown. Remember Lord Denning? Lord Denning's decision? A bunch of... Why? Well, I, was, I was still... Where was I? I was in school. 1982. I was in university. They patriated the Constitution. 1982. Section 35 in Canada's Constitution. Existing Aboriginal treaty rights are recognized and affirmed. Existing Aboriginal treaty rights. Full box of rights or empty box of rights. What process do you utilize to fill up that box of rights? Do we have a treaty right to post-secondary? You started, you Indians get everything for free. How come? <laughs> no. <laughs> when is enough enough? Why can't you be just like us? <laughs> Section 25. Why well, point that out? There are 10,000 post-secondary students on the wait list to access university training. Way too much. Little Black Bear, we get $80,000 in post-secondary funding. Our population's rising. Can't keep up with the need. I gotta take money from my little Tim Hortons gas bar and supplement the post-secondary budget. Because I made the decision as chief, whoever wants to go to school, you're going to school. There's no better way we can get that gap closed than through a good education. 
And so, if it's a right, the spirit and intent to education, why are there 10,000 students on the wait list? And the spirit and intent, little Blackbird's promise, Chief, when you are ready to settle down on your reserve, we'll provide a little red brick schoolhouse to you, and we're going to teach you and your children the cunning of the white man. Sounds good, eh? The cunning of the white man. Spirit and intent to a good education. It might have been a little red brick schoolhouse in 1874, 2015. We need to go to Trent. That's a good education. <laughs> That's how we're going to live, how we're going to survive. So the spirit and intent to education. And the treaties. Back to the Constitution Act 1982, Section 35, Existing Aboriginal Treaty Rights. Very important. Full box of rights, empty box of rights. What process do we utilize to fill up that box? And one of the most important rights, the inherent right to self-government. I prefer... I would say, you call a beaver a duck, it still won't fly. Self-determination. The inherent right to self-determination. As indigenous peoples, as indigenous nations, we have our own land, our own laws, our own languages, our identified people, identifiable forms of government. Five things that qualify in international law for the inherent right to self-determination. But again, it doesn't mean anything unless you have economic self-sufficiency. It doesn't mean anything until you start participating in the economy. It doesn't mean anything until you start benefiting from the resource wealth, the gross domestic product, and it's billions, have been generated from the land and resource wealth. And if it's billions, we're still 63rd. And everybody else is 6th. I'm going to keep coming back to that. Constitution. Now, Supreme Court rulings, 1997. So in Canada, you know, there's three branches of government. Judicial branch, Supreme Court of Canada. The legislative branch, the executive branch. You know, three branches. We're saying, and I say, why don't the legislative and the executive branch of government start listening to the judicial branch, which is the highest court in Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada, and start getting your laws and your policies in line with what your Supreme Court is saying? The judicial branch is saying very clearly, in Dalgamuk, 1997, Aboriginal rights and title, recognition, of that. But more importantly, elders' oral history and evidence is admissible as evidence. So all those elders' oral history and the teachings is admissible as evidence in this Muniao court over here. The Supreme Court. Very important case. And there's been a lot of cases that have been won in indigenous people's favor in the Supreme Court. But then nothing changes. The legislation doesn't change. The policies don't change. So we've got to work together to get government to start listening to their, their own Supreme Court. And the Dalgamook was just the start of it. Remember the Marshall decision? Supreme Court decision. Treaty Indians, Indians of the Mi'kmaq out on the East Coast have a right to the fishery. But oh, there's a big furor and an uproar and whoa, whoa, whoa. The Supreme Court made a caveat. Only a moderate livelihood, you Indians. First time ever the Supreme Court on the Marshall decision. You can Google that. 
I research it, whatever. First time ever, Marshall decision. So Dalgamuk, Marshall, Siwi, Sparrow, Girin, all these cases, the caller are starting to move. Aboriginal title and rights is starting to get recognized. A good thing. The Haida. I want to go to that one. I'm trying to find that one clause. This one here. I talked about the NRTA subject any trust, but enhorsement. Justice Corey, when was talking about this piece, Supreme Court judge, although it might well be politically and morally unacceptable in today's climate to take such a step as that settled in the 1930 agreement without consultation with and concurrence of the native people affected, nonetheless, the power of the federal government is unilaterally make such modifications unquestioned and hasn't been challenged in this case. So why I put that in there, when the Supreme Court and all these judges are doing these things, it left a little bit of a window on the NRTA that the authority of the federal government, did they have the authority, did they have the power to unilaterally make this change? Nobody's questioned it yet. So, all of this stuff going forward. And this is the, the past, present. We're going to get to the future here pretty quick. All of these cases. Haida, the Miccosoe Creek case in 2005. Because Haida and Taku River Klingit, first Supreme Court decisions, and then the Miccosoe Cree in Treaty 8, Alberta, came on. It's exactly the same principles. Title and rights recognized. Duty for consultation and consent of the Crown. And I put this in here, the 2007, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that was a big day for us. It was a big day for Indigenous peoples throughout the world. A declaration was passed regarding our rights. Very important one. And some of you might remember, initially there was five. That's good. That's power. There was five countries that didn't endorse the UN Declaration. You remember them? Yeah. Canada, USA, Australia, New Zealand. They didn't endorse it. It took some time. It took a little coaxing. They eventually did endorse it, right? But it's sad. Even this September at the WCIP, the World Conference on Indigenous Peoples in New York, when all the countries of the world came together with the indigenous peoples of the world, the Maori, the indigenous people from Hawaii, from all over, the Sami people, we all got together and said, hey, we need an outcome document you know, to help implement and put pressure on nation states to make this aspirational document a reality. And that's the quote from Canada. They view it as an aspirational document. We don't know. It's bare minimums and international standards, human rights regarding indigenous peoples. The last couple of years, people were working on this outcome document. And it was presented and unanimous, unanimously endorsed in New York in September. One country made a caveat. One country stood up and embarrassed itself in the international world. And it was Canada. So right away, I was there. I changed my statement the next day. And I called them on it. 
and basically said, Canada, how can you disagree with your own Supreme Court? In, you don't have it on here, but in the, um, the Williams case, in the Chilcotin decision that just came down in June. Remember, this, that decision came down in June. The Supreme Court recognized Aboriginal rights and title. And Aboriginal people have the right to use the land and benefit from the land. So how can they get up and say they don't agree with free prior informed consent or the, the sharing of the land and resource wealth? How can they get up as a nation state and not listen to their own Supreme Court? How can they not follow their own constitution? We should play the video for you sometime, but that's another story. <laughs> Val's got the video at the UN. And I didn't know, I was reading my statement. I got a little bit of an ovation, yeah. <laughs> and, and only because Canada cannot continue to do that on the world scene. You know, it embarrasses themselves. Like they're supposed to be promoters, protectors of human rights, fundamental human rights. And they had a golden opportunity to champion that. And they missed it. Even in fact that our relationship now as indigenous peoples with the nation state is so unnecessarily confrontational. Unnecessarily confrontational. The UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples even put that in his report, James Anaya. It's unnecessarily confrontational. $106 million the federal government spent fighting inherent and average rights and treaty rights. That's what they spend on lawyers. Why do that? That's a lot of housing. That's a lot of safe shelters. That's a lot of potable wa access to potable water and infrastructure. If they would just start embracing inherent rights, Aboriginal rights, and treaty it's good for everybody. It would save everything. So this is a little bit of that timeline, the history. And I'm trying to demonstrate to you all that there is a constitutional, legal, and moral obligation to start dealing with this concept called revenue sharing, benefit sharing. We're to peacefully coexist, peaceful coexistence and mutual respect between our, our peoples, our nations, to mutually benefit from the land and resource wealth. 663rd, 6 and 63rd. I'm going to keep saying that. Just think what this country would look like if we went up to 60. 45. Just think of the return on investment. Just think if you put more schools, more adequate teacher salaries and resources in play, that these young First Nations men and women, these kids, these special children, what a huge return on investment. What a huge return. So there is a historical, legal, moral obligation of the Crown to deal with our rights. And we don't want it all. It's to share. Mutually benefit. The Chilcotin case, June. Chief Roger William, our champion, our hero, our warrior. 25 years fighting in the legal system. The decision came down. That was a big day for everybody. Glorious day. He had an elder's caravan come from B.C. all the way to Ottawa. We hosted them in Treaty 4 territory going. We hosted them coming back. And it was just a very, very special gathering. And it was so important 
how they did it. And there was no wonder it came out in a successful way for the Chilcotin nation. They had language. They had ceremony. They had the drummers. They had their youth. They had their women. They had their men elders. They had everything was ceremony. And why I stress the importance again, remember I said language so key? Remember the five elements? Land, language, laws, people, government. The language is gone. How do I know your Odawa? How do I know your Ojibwe? How do I know your Nihiyawak? How do I know your Nakota? How do I know your Denisonkhine? How do I know your Black Coast Salish? You get, you get sucked up into the fabric. And that's a big thing. That's a big fear. Because even in ceremony, the connection, the world, the creation story, all of our lodges, all of our songs are based in your language. It's so fundamental to our existence as indigenous peoples. And the Tilkotan had all those elements. And this is really key now because I say with the Tilkotan decision, with the Tilkotan case, the Williams decision in June, we have a big arrow in our quiver now. And how do we use it? In a respectful way. In a good way. So that we can close that gap. So that we can create economic certainty. So that we can create economic stability in every provincial territory. With the full inclusion of indigenous peoples because of that Chilcotin case, we need to be part of that economic table. We want jobs for our people. We want to create wealth for our people. But as well, if we're here, we also bring the added element of respect for the land and water. So it's value added. Developing long-term sustainable economic development strategies between indigenous nations, with industry, provincial governments. There's got to be tables and processes in every province to do that. So I want each and every one of you to phone and write your premiers and your local member of parliament to say, this is a good idea, premier. Hey, local member of parliament, this is a good idea. Get involved. Make sure there is a process in Ontario, Premier Wynne, to involve the indigenous peoples from the Ring of Fire in the north to the south, to the east, to the west. They can only do it as a provincial territory. The federal government can help coordinate. AFN can help coordinate. We can't do it as AFN. But I'm meeting with each of the premiers. They have this thing called cough. Not at the doctor shop, but cough, Council of the Federation. And they meet every July. So part of my 100-day plan as national chief is to meet with all the national leaders, meet with all the premiers meet with industry leaders and encourage them because of what we just went through in the last 45 minutes here about constitutional, legal, historical, moral obligations to set up those processes to create economic stability and economic certainty with full inclusion of indigenous peoples and start that work sooner than later. Closing the gap. Closing the gap. So these bullets here are straightforward. That it's not only restricted to a postage size stamp in Chilcotin territory, because that's what some people thought. Oh, we had a village over here, so this is just our Aboriginal title. 
It's expanded. It's expanded bigger. Even in our territory, little black bear, I don't view it as federal crown land set aside for the use and benefit of Indians. That's the legal term. Crown land. It's set aside for the use and benefit of Indians. And create a skunagun. It's almost like lands left over. Like if they took all the good stuff and left us there, the, the crappy piece over here. Iskunagan. Lands reserved, set aside. But we view it as sovereign land. Where we'll keep our laws and our practices and tradition. But now, the challenge becomes exerting our jurisdiction beyond this Iskunagan throughout traditional territory, throughout Treaty 4 territory. So to the tribes here, how are they exerting their, ter their territory beyond the reserve boundaries? To your ancestral lands, throughout your, your whole territory. That's the big challenge. And so with this court case, it means it's not just a little piece. It's enlarged, the scope's enlarged. So there's three things, duty to consult and accommodate. Duty to consult and accommodate. Who has that obligation? Is it industry or the crown? It's the crown. So both levels of government, crowns, where is their policy, where is their framework to ensure that there's adequate duty to consult and accommodation processes in place? This government has contracted a gentleman, gentleman named Doug Aford. Minister Bernie Valcour has contracted him. He's coming up with a report. He's been gone out across Canada, dealing with the pipelines coming across, dealing with the liquefied natural gas in northern BC, dealing with the east-west pipelines, dealing with the mining issues, trying to get his head around the Chilcotin case. And what's he going to be recommending? We talked to him last week, said, hey, Doug, the Crown has a duty to consult. We're different as Indigenous peoples. We're not just fishermen groups or hunting groups. We have Section 35 rights. Nobody else has Section 35 rights. So you need a separate process for Section 35 rights of holders. So you need to make sure this duty to consult and accommodate is put in place. Because if you don't do it, there's going to be legal challenges. And there will be, to protect our inherent rights, our Aboriginal rights, to make sure they're respected and honored. So there's three things, this duty to consult and accommodate, the honor of the crown is key, the honor of the crown. Our relationship as indigenous peoples is with the crown. And I always say in a respectful way, I have not yet seen a legal argument or the legal basis for the Crown's perceived acquirement of title. I haven't seen that yet. But again, I'm not making a big deal about it to create economic uncertainty. But I sure would like a process so Indigenous nations with industry and the prop can be around that table together to work this out so that we're part of the economic boom, if you will part of the economy in a big, meaningful, substantive way.
Now, we've talked about the other successful court cases, the long list. We've talked about Haida. The latest one as well is Steve, Steve Cotre, Chief Cotre from Treaty 8, Miccosu Creek. He recently won the duty to consult law. The Federal Court of Canada determined that the executive arm of government is responsible for consulting with First Nations on proposed environmental legislation before introducing a bill where it may have a negative impact on treaty rights. That's another big victory for us. Do you remember Bill C-38 and C-45, the omnibus bills? That came about a year or so back. And it made the environmental assessments, the environmental protection of the lands and water were kind of put to the side. And everybody said, hey, that's not acceptable. That helped give birth to the Idle No More movement. And people just said, hey, as indigenous peoples, we not only have a duty, but it's a responsibility to, to stand up for the land and water. And so that was born because of Bill C-38, C-45. And the omnibus pieces of legislation. And so what this recent Supreme Court, or this federal court decision said, hey, executive branch, if you're going to introduce any new pieces of legislation, there is that duty to consult because it may impact in a negative way inherent in treaty rights. And you can't do that. Very important piece. Now, only a couple more slides, then I'm going to open up for questions. What we're seeing here, again, I've talked about the importance of the land and the water. Importance of water. Look at that, isn't that good timing? Nippy, Oh, that's good. Thank you. And um, so these points here. When we start talking about this piece on resource revenue sharing, and it's more than just collective or impact benefit agreements. In Saskatchewan, we have a lot of potash in the southern part, in Treaty 4 territory. A lot of uranium in the north. There could be as well the oil and gas tar sands, if you will, in northern Saskatchewan, just like in Fort Mac on the Alberta side. The whole point about it, when I talked about potash, I had the president of BHP come out to Little Black Bear with me and spend a whole day with me. And that, to me, was a positive experience in the sense that they were thinking of putting a potash mine about a half hour away from Little Black Bear. And so I had the president of this multi-billion dollar company come out to my little reserve and spend the whole day with his management team. So I really indigenized it up, eh? I, I put a teepee up, <laughs> buffalo robes, elders, yeah, of course, you know. But we smoked pipe and we had ceremony. And it was all about relationship building. Relationship building. And we told them, if you're going to come in our territory, Respect the land and water. If you're going to dig beneath that six inches, that depth of a plow, have a feast, we'll have a ceremony. To make sure that whatever we do is done in a good way. And so 
whatever we do with BHP, that my people will have access to jobs, employment opportunities, that we build a relationship together, that you don't just take the resource. And there might be things coming back. Now, that's an individual example of whereby companies, whether they be gold, potash, whatever it is, they're, they're doing individual IBAs. And that's all right. I'm talking about a bigger policy piece in the sense that, like they do in the Northwest Territories, and, and th this is actually happening already. Resource revenue is actually happening in Canada. It's happening in the Northwest Territories. 25% of the royalties that are generated from the natural resource wealth go back out to the indigenous nations. Quebec, La Belle Province de Quebec, they set up two tables in Quebec between Premier Couillard and the indigenous chiefs there. One to deal with duty to consult and accommodate, how to get their heads around that, and resource revenue sharing, how they get their heads around that. So it's happening in NWT, a little bit in Quebec. Going to happen in Ontario soon, hopefully, with all your pressures and your letters and your emails to Premier Wynne and your MPs. Same thing in Saskatchewan, same thing in Alberta, same thing in BC. All in light of Williams. So I'll write again. I'm trying to show that there is a legal, historical, and moral obligation to look at this new concept. And it's a way to economic prosperity of closing this gap. It's nothing new. We, I've talked about it for 25 years. It's just starting to get a little traction. And, and to our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters, it's like we don't want all of it at all. It's just to share, you know, in a respectful way. And I always say there's been billions upon billions generated in GDP from the land and resource wealth. And all we want is to share, closing the gap. And that's the whole reason for being here tonight, because it was part of my 100-day strategy to meet with the federal leaders I've done, meeting with provincial leaders I've done, and meeting with leaders of the academic university community. Leaders here. Because you don't have to be elected to be leaders. So I encourage you to keep going on your path and bring our circle together as indigenous peoples. And we're all treaty people. That's a big, big statement now. We're all treaty people. It's not just one side. Two parties to the treaty. And we're all supposed to benefit from the land and resource wealth together. I'm going to say that much, and thank you for listening. Thank you.